sure want to thank all the musicians and the singers this week. It's been wonderful. And uh, I've heard some brand new songs that uh, I'm, I found myself humming last night. And uh, that, that song I've never heard before, but uh, well, I really like it. So thank you for choosing it. And Ryan did a great job tonight as well. All the preaching uh, has been so helpful to me. I want to thank Brother Shemesh for some timely messages in my own life. Uh, I don't think I'll ever think about the word dung <laughs> the same way. But all kidding aside, what a blessing uh, each message has been. Uh, Pastor Mansour, thanks for sharing your heart just about your country. Uh, what a blessing that was. And then that message today that uh, Pastor Hernan preached about disturbances, how God disturbs us uh, to move us. Uh, that was so helpful. And, you know, so many of these messages you, you wish you had heard at previous seasons in your life. Uh, but you're, you're, you're grateful when, when God gives you truth along the way. And then so many others have spoken, uh, special sessions, split sessions. I wish I could have been in all of them, but uh, I've heard that they, they went well. And then all the folks at Good Shepherd, uh, I know that uh, the conference is not over for you. There's a lot of cleanup and setup and all that goes on when, when we leave this place. And so for all the days that you spent praying and preparing before, and then all of what you're going to do afterward, uh, you've been such a blessing. Yeah. I talked to one of our, uh, one of the, the faithful Good Shepherd people today who said, you know, I've not even been able to hear the messages. I've just been working, and I can't wait to go back and listen to them. And what a blessing that people are serving while we're sitting. And I know that that's, for many of us, that, that pastor and We've been on the other side of that, and we, we know just how much labor that is. And so thank you, uh, Good Shepherd, for, for this meeting, and what, what an important meeting this is. Isn't it just wonderful to sit and hear the music and be able to sing your, your heart out and, and, and not hear your own voice? You know what I'm talking about? Some places you go, you sing your hearts out, and people don't want you to sing your heart out. Here, it all just kind of gets drowned into that, that great choir. And so thank you for, uh, for your participation. And I'm so glad that you came. A couple things that I do outside of our local church. Um, obviously, one is, you know, I preach here and there from, from place to place. The other burden that I have is just that people uh, would be in their Bible every day. That's a, it's a burden that I have. And so about three or four years ago, I started a little podcast, um, never really thought much would come of it, but I, I did it really for our own church people, and it's, it's called Everyday Truth. And we just go through the Bible, uh, verse by verse, book by book, I think we've covered 20 or 25 books now of the Bible, and it's about 15 minutes a day. And many of you uh, have come to me to say that you've at least heard it or you listen regularly. Uh, I'd love to have you join us. Uh, there are other great podcasts out there, uh, but this is great on your way to work, uh, maybe as you're getting ready in the morning. It's just an, another way. You can never get too much Bible. It's just another way to get the Bible into you. And you can find that on all the regular podcasting platforms if you want to see it by video, it's on all the social media platforms. But most people just, just, just listen, and it's available. And if we can be a help and blessing, that's what we want to do. 
And so thank you on behalf of my wife, Wanda, who was given the choice of coming to this conference or spending time with her daughter in Sydney, uh, also my daughter, uh, but I uh, <laughs> want to clarify that. Um, uh, wow. <laughs> I, I've said some dumb things. That, 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 that's up there. Uh, we just celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary. Uh, a few years back, it, about this, this time of year, I was driving with my son Joshua, and we had attended a conference together. Matter of fact, it, it was the conference where he had met his wife-to-be, and it was a blessing. So uh, to him, it was a blessing, and to me as well. And we, we were driving back to, we lived in Pittsburgh, and it was about our wedding anniversary, and I said, Josh, I can't believe I, we've been married. Your mom and I have been married, I think it was like 25 years at that point. We've been married for 25 years. I said, think about it, Josh. We have been married longer than you've been alive. <laughs> he waited and looked at me and said, well, Dad, I, I hope so. <laughs> So there you go. She is my daughter as well. I want you to open your Bible to the book of Haggai, if you would, tonight, the book of Haggai. I probably should have told you that at the beginning. This will help. It's right after the book of Zephaniah. So all you really have to do is find Zephaniah, and it's the very next book. Haggai chapter 1, please. Would you keep your Bible open as we uh, talk about a couple important things tonight? Now, I want to talk to you in this final uh, service on the topic of distraction. W one of the great benefits of a conference like this is that it, it, it redirects our thinking. And the redirection of thinking is almost always uh, redirected to what we already know. I would dare say that most of what this conference has, has, has been to us and most of what we have heard are things that we've already heard. They're truths that we already know. But we become distracted. We, 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 we get off track. And there's just something about coming and being saturated with the Word of God over a few days that reorients our thinking. And I want to show you how that happened to a group of people uh, 2,500 years ago that just received a body of messages from a man by the name of Haggai. Haggai preached four messages. And then from another man by the name of Zechariah. Listen, Haggai was an old man. You say, define old. 56 or older as opposed to young, 55 or younger. How old are you, Pastor Skelly? 55. <laughs> Haggai was an old man. Zechariah was a young man. But, but here's what I love. Are you ready for this? They were preaching the same message. And is that not a blessing when the older generation and the younger generation are captured by ministering with and preaching the same truth. Because we understand that the evil one loves to attack Christianity not horizontally, 
but vertically. Because when there's generational disconnect, well, we can eliminate an entire swath of Christianity. That's why the Old Testament ends with a curse. That fathers and children have hearts that are disaffected to each other. Insofar that before Messiah can come, the hearts of the children need to be turned to the fathers. And the hearts of the fathers need to be turned to their children. And so here's Haggai, an old man, preaching a message. Here is Zechariah, a young man, preaching essentially the same message. Now, what message was it? And to whom were they preaching? And why? And what relevance does that message have for you and me? Those are the questions we want to answer. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Well, the Bible says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, the four messages that Haggai preached are all time-stamped. Every one of them has the exact day and time on which the message was preached. You say, well, why is that a big deal? That's a big deal because when there's a timestamp, there's accountability. When there's a timestamp, there's accountability. This message was preached on this day at this place to these people. And the people at that time in that place are now accountable for that truth. One Bible commentator figured out all the dates, all the times. He extrapolated back all the numbers, and he figured out that this message was preached on August 29th, 520 B.C. Now, is that true? I don't know. But I do know it's being preached on July 6th, 2022. And I do know that we are going to hear that message, and so therefore we have a timestamp, don't we? God is going to hold us accountable for what we'll hear from his word tonight. Now look at verse 1 again. So in this time came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet. A prophet was one who spoke uh, from God to man. He represented God to man, as opposed to a priest who represented man to God. And so Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, he was the governor, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And so the message, first and foremost, came to the leader. The leader was accountable most. But essentially, the message came through them to all the people. Look at verse number two. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. You know the Lord's house refers to the temple. You know the Lord's house refers to the rebuilding of the temple. The great Solomonic temple, built by Solomon, obviously, had been destroyed. The Babylonian invasion had ensued and the captivity had taken place and now King Cyrus had issued the decree that the people could go back to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the temple. And when they went back, uh, they got busy, but then they got distracted, just like many of us. We got busy and then we got distracted. 
We were on fire and then we cooled down. And so the Bible says the time. This people, they're saying the time is not come that the Lord's house should be built. Then, verse 3, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? A sealed house was a paneled house. You know, back in those days, a, a paneled house was uh, the, the sign of, 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 of luxury, of nice finishes, a well-finished home. You put the tile on, install the tile last, the sealed house. And this house, to lie west, is it right that you've built your houses, and yet this house, my house, is still unbuilt? Verse number five. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now I know that we have 50 or so pastors in the room, and I can't stand preaching to pastors for two reasons. Number one, they don't ever really listen, okay? <laughs> they're listening with one ear, and then the other ear, they're getting sermon ideas. Oh, I could preach this. <laughs> I could change this title, you know? And then they also are pretty judgmental. You know, if you, you can preach a great message, Pastor Hernan, and say one thing wrong, one little slip up, and a heretic, you know what I mean? It's like you got your doctrinal antenna out. So pastors, just kind of, you know, back off a little bit and be gracious tonight. We've all preached this text. I know you have as well. We've all heard messages from this text. I know you have as well. My outline won't be your outline. Your outline was better, okay? I, I understand that. But there's some, still some things we can learn. Look at verse number six. Ye have sown much and bring in little. That's a disappointment. Ye, ye have not enough. Ye, 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 ye eat, but you have not enough. Ye, you drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but, but there's none warm. He that earneth wages earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Boy, that's a waste. Look at verse number seven. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So now he's bookended verse six with that same imperative. Consider your ways. Look at the last verse we'll read. Verse number eight. Go up to the mountain. Do you see that? Verse eight. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Now, now, don't miss this. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Now, if I were to ask you tonight, if you wanted God to take pleasure in your life, your answer would, would be an emphatic yes. If I said that, you wanted God to be glorified in your church, you would say absolutely, resoundingly, yes. So let's talk tonight for just a few minutes about distraction. How we get distracted from what we know to do, from what we know to be, and how God brings us back. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Lord, we need your help. We've sought you already in this service. We've knelt, some of us, 
We've prayed with a partner. We've asked that you would meet with us. And we didn't pray those words in a perfunctory way. Lord, we, we prayed sincerely. And we know what you've told us. We know that when your word is, is preached that you accompany it. We know that your spirit uses your word as his primary tool. And Lord, tonight I pray that our hearts, each one of us, would be wide open to what you have to say. God, I pray that you would do a work in this room. Insofar that when we walk away from this conference, we could not point to a song or sermon. We couldn't point to a singer or a preacher. But we could point to you and you alone as the one that accomplished something in our lives. And so God, tonight, I pray that you bless this message, this passage, these people for your glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to answer these five questions tonight. Here they are. Number one, who are these people? Who, who are the people to whom Haggai has received this message from God? And God says, Haggai, go tell them this. Didn't mince words. Hey, think about what you're doing. God said, consider your ways. Well, what, what if God were to send a messenger to your front door? What if God were to send a messenger from heaven to knock on your door and you opened your door and God looked you square in the eye through that messenger and said, hey, I want you to think about what you're doing. I want you to really think about what you're doing. Boy, would that arrest your attention? Would that make you stop in your track? That's the tenor of the message tonight. Stop and think from God. Who are they? Number two, well, why, why, why did they stop doing what God told them to do? Who are these people? Uh, why did they stop doing what God had called them to do? I mean, this was a great project. This was a, a, a gracious opportunity that God gave them. This was a second chance to rebuild the temple. They had already made these mistakes a generation ago, and now God has given them graciously another chance to work for him and to serve him and to glorify him. Who are these people? And why did they stop? And why did they stop so long? I mean, it's one thing to get off track. It's one thing to take a wrong turn. It's one thing to become distracted. But, but over weeks, months, years? Because if I understand my Bible correctly, these people stayed distracted for 16 years. It had been 16 years since they had served God the way they were supposed to. It had been 16 years since they had embodied the priorities they were supposed to. For 16 years, they had languished in mediocrity six, so long that they had become so used to it that they needed to be awakened from their slumber. Who are these people? Why did they quit? And why did they quit for, for so long? And, and how did God get their attention? How, how does God get any one of our attention? When we get into patterns of ministry, when we get into patterns of living where we've done it so long and we've been this way so long that we just kind of don't even see ourselves. 
Sometimes you go to a person's house and it smells odd because maybe a, a pet or maybe just some other reason, but they can't smell it because they live there. And sometimes uh, that happens in ministry. We can't smell it because we live there. And so how did God alarm clock these people to say, hey, wake up? How does God alarm clock me? How does God alarm clock you? The fifth question we're going to answer tonight is, and what did they do about it? When God rang the alarm clock in their lives, when God sent Haggai to thunder this message, what did they do about it? What will you do about it? That's the bigger question. Their time stamp was August 29th, 520 B.C. They've been been gone for a while. But our time stamp is July 6th. 2022, and God wants us to do something about it. All right, question number one, who are they? Well, these are people that live in Jerusalem, obviously. These are people that have worked on the temple, obviously. These are people that are Jewish people. They're God's people. What are they doing there? Well, you know the story about how God's people had, had violated God's law and how God's people had not listened to God's prophet. You know how, uh, the story how God's people had to, be, had to be chastised. And the way by which God chastised God's people is he allowed them to go into what we call Babylonian captivity. Why? Because he allowed the Babylonians, the world power of the day, under Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to basically uh, shake up the people of God. He did so in three invasions, 605 B.C. And he took Daniel and Hanani, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and should have gotten their attention just with one invasion, but God's people didn't listen. Uh, they, they weren't listening. And so God a second time allowed a second invasion in 597 B.C. And this time some more people uh, were taken, some tradesmen were taken, a larger swath of people were taken, among whom was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel the prophet went with them and spoke to them in captivity. You would think that a second time they would listen. But they still didn't listen. They still tried to trust to Egypt or, or, or other uh, little foreign powers. They didn't trust God, didn't seek God. Boy, they're hard-headed. And so God, a third time, allowed a third invasion. And this was the coup de grace. A one-year siege of Jerusalem in 587 to 586 B.C. where Jeremiah for 40 years has warned God's people. For 40 years, he's lamented the coming destruction of Jerusalem. For 40 years, Jeremiah said, don't, don't, don't. But his warnings went unheeded. The Bible says that Jerusalem was overtaken and stone was not left upon stone and all Jeremiah and the people could do, the ones that survived, one-third, the ones that survived, all they could do is lament the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet the amazing thing is God had said specifically through another prophet by the name of Isaiah who lived 150 years before Jeremiah. Think about it. Isaiah prophesied all the way back in the 700s to Hezekiah. We're talking about the 730s uh, B.C. And, and God had told Isaiah, hey, there's coming a day when my people are going to disobey me. There's coming a day when the, the, they are going to be taken captive to Babylon. But here's what I'm going to do. You can read all about this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up a king and his name is going to be Cyrus. How do people not believe the Bible? I'm going to raise up a king. His name's going to be Cyrus, and he's going to issue a decree. 
And in that decree, he's going to decree that God's people can leave captivity and go back and rebuild my temple. So bad things are going to happen because you're going to make some bad decisions, but I'm a good God, and I'm going to give you this second chance. How about that? And not only did uh, Isaiah say that, but, but Jeremiah reiterated that. And so the people of God in captivity had prophets like uh, Jeremiah and prophets like uh, uh, Isaiah that they could read and, and prophets contemporary like Daniel and Ezekiel telling them, hey, God still has a plan and God still has a plan. Well, then guess what happens? The Babylonian Empire crashes and the Medo-Persian Empire comes to power. And wouldn't you know that the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire is a guy by the name of <gasps> Cyrus. And the very first thing that Cyrus does in the first year of his reign is he writes this edict to say, hey, if you're a Jew and you want to go back to Jerusalem, you're free to do so. Matter of fact, I'll help finance it. What government does that? Good shepherd, I know you're growing. We want to build you a new auditorium. We'll pay for it. Yeah, right. And that's what Cyrus did. Anyone that wants to go. Now, if you're a Jew in captivity and you read that edict and, and you realize this is what God said would happen 200 years ago, you'd be like, that's the most amazing fulfilled prophecy I've ever seen in my life. Who would not go? Most. Such is the grip of worldly comfort. We've built our cities. We've got our lifestyle. We speak a new language. We're comfortable. So what happens? In spite of overwhelming prophetic evidence, in spite of the clear teaching of God's word, they said, we're not going. But wait a minute. About 50,000 of them did. Now, that's a small number, relatively, but hey, let's, let's hear it for the 50,000. And 50,000 went. And Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jeconiah, uh, in the line of David, Zerubbabel, he's leading them. And Joshua, the high priest, he's uh, shepherding them. And so Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, they lead the people, 50,000. They go back, they find nothing. It's just ruins. They've got neighbors that don't like them. Uh, they, they've got a, a government that has funded this, but they're not going to be on board for long. And they begin the arduous process of just getting the job done. And the very first thing they do, don't miss this, the very first thing they do is they rebuild the altar of God. Can you imagine that? That big Solomonic temple that was so beautiful, there's some old men there that still remember it. And they build this temple, but the first thing they do before they ever put up walls, before they, they just kind of put the altar in place. Why? Because when you come back to God, the most important thing is not the stuff on the outside. The most important thing is to get the altar right. Some of you might be here tonight saying, well, I, it's been so long since I, I, I've done anything for God. It's been so long since I've ever uh, even been around God. What do I do? Get your heart right first. Make your heart his throne. Come back to God. Uh, just get this, to get this thing right. Get the, that's the, get the relationship. That's what they did. They built the altar first. And then you know what they did next? They laid the foundation. Read all about this in Ezra. Because Ezra recounted all of this. And so what's the next thing they did? They rebuilt the altar, but then they, they laid the foundation. Have you ever laid foundation? Foundation work is hard work. Hey, foundation work is thankless work. 
No one drives by a building and says, man, what a foundation. <laughs> you don't even see it. It's below ground. You know how you come back to God? You get the altar right, and you work on all the below-the-ground stuff. You get the altar right, you work on all the things that people don't see that make all the difference about what you're going to build. So who are these people? Who are the people of Haggai chapter 1? The people of Haggai chapter 1 are not the people that didn't come. The people of Haggai chapter 1, these are the good people. Hey, these are the people that did come. These are the people that built the altar. These are the people that laid the foundation. What I want to tell you is the people that are hearing the message in Haggai chapter 1 are good people. And the devil's not concerned about the two million over here. He's already got them. They're living in worldly comfort. They have no desire to serve God, no desire to build a temple, no desire to be used of God in any great, uh, any great way. No, it's these 50,000 that are getting a rebuke. Doesn't seem fair. Seems like, oh, Lord, why are you getting on my case? I mean, there are people that don't even go to church. There are people that don't even name your name. And, and Lord, why are you getting on my case? My point is, who are these people? They are, they're good people. They're the pilgrims. They're the pioneers. They're the passionate ones. You say, well, Pastor Skelly, then why did they stop? Now, you're not going to believe this. You can't make this stuff up. Why did they, what stopped them in their project? Again, you're not going to believe it. You can't make this stuff up. Two reasons. Number one, you know why they stopped? Government interference. And they just started passing edicts. You got to wear a mask. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> got to get a jab. No, no. Here, here's what happened. When they showed up, watch this. When they showed up in Jerusalem and began building, None of the neighbors liked it. You know why? Because when the Jews left, they kind of took some of that land. And that was prime real estate. I mean, that was the major highway. You know, whoever controlled that area controlled commerce and made some money. And, and so when the people of God came back, the Samaritans, they were very upset. And that they couldn't distract God's people from doing the work. They tried to intimidate them. And they tried to, uh, to, to uh, make the work uh, stop. But they couldn't do it. So you know what they did? They lied. They wrote letters back to Persia and said, Hey, uh, just want to let you know as a concerned neighbor that these people that you were so good to, that you allowed to come back to Jerusalem to build this project for their God, here's what they're actually doing. They're actually building up their defenses. They're actually kind of building up their city. And what their end game is, is they really do want to avoid paying taxes. That's what they're doing. So some official gets this back in Persia and says, oh, no, they don't. That project stops. So a letter came back and said, this project's over. Until further notice, you no longer have a permit to build this. Well, listen, there comes time in life when we have to obey God rather than man. And God had told them, rebuild that temple. God had told them, go back. God had told them. But now they get this a government edict that says, no, you, you can't do what God told you to do. And they have to make a decision. And their decision was, okay, well, we'll just stop. 
And I, I can understand that. I, I'm not judging them. I, I can understand that. But, but for a week, for a, a month, for two months, for a year, for two years? They, they stopped for so long that stopping became what was normal. And building became what was abnormal. And no doubt their justification was, but, but at least we're here. And look at what we have done. And we're not like them. Well, at least, uh, at least we're on the field. And look at we, what we have done. And we're not like them. As if that were a justification for present disobedience. And so why do they stop? Government intervention, local bullies. So, sometimes what stops us is not the, the edict from the, the government headquarters. Sometimes what stops us is local brethren, local bullies. Who said, well, you don't want us to be involved in your project, then we're not going to let you do your project. Oh, you won't let us be a part of it, so then we're, we're going to do everything we can to stop you. And uh, they allowed themselves to be intimidated by local bullies and government intervention. Good people. These are good people that had a pioneering, pilgriming, passionate spirit coming back saying, God, we, we're going to leave all of our stuff. We're going to leave home. We're going to go, uh, we're gonna go make a new home. We're going we're gonna to do what you've called us to do. Hey, these are good people that quit. We all know people that fit that category. And in some cases, we are those people. Because they quit, but they didn't quit on God. They were still worshiping. And we still go to church. They were still testifying. He's still our God. They're still in the right place, doing some of the right things. They're just not doing what they were called to do. Good people who quit. Watch this, number three. But how, how do they quit for so long? I mean, isn't there going to be the weight of, man, we got to get back to it. It's been months since I've read my Bible. I can't remember the last time I had a protracted season of prayer and fasting. I used to always pass out gospel tracts. I used to have a passion to tell people about Christ. But I got to get back to that. But there was none of that. Days became weeks. And weeks became months and months became years and years became a decade. And 16 years, they're still lulled to sleep. Why? What possible rationale could they have employed to justify 16 years of mediocrity. What lies were they telling themselves? I think the first lie God exposes is in verse 2. Would you look at it again? The, the lie, what lies were they tell, telling themselves? Look at verse number 2. Thus speaketh the Lord, Lord of hosts, saying, this people say, in other words, what God is saying to Haggai is, I hear their excuses. I know their mindset. I know what they're offering. Watch this. The people say that the time, the time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Here's what the people were not saying. The people were not saying, hey, God's house is a bad project. They weren't saying, you know, the, the temple's not needed. No, they weren't saying that at all. 
They were simply saying, this is not the time for it. In other words, we're going to get back to it. And after all, this altar, we built that. This foundation, we built that. And we're here. And we're not like them. They didn't come. And we came. We answered the call. Here we are. We built this. And we're going to. And we're going to finish. It's going to be great. It's just not time now. One of the biggest excuses we tell ourselves is that there's, there's more time. Do you use the little term in Australia, kick the can down the road? So we kick the can down the road. We know to do good and we do it not. Well, I'm gonna. You know, I know, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. And we kick the can. And I know what I need to do, and I'm not where I need to be, but, but at least I'm not like Dan, and we kick the hand again. And I know there's more to do, and I, I, I know I'm not where I need to be, but, but look at what I've done, and it's more than what they've done, and look at what I've got, and I'm not, I've not turned my back on God. We kick the can down the road. Watch this. So we kick the can, and we kick the can, and we, until there's no more road. Until there's no more road. And there are little lies that we tell ourselves to salve our conscience. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. And because I'm gonna, I don't have to today. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow. We'll go into such a city, we'll continue there a year and, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what should be on the morrow. What's your life? It's a vapor. It appears for a little time. And then vanishes away for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's, it's sin. It's sin for us to live in our apathy and our mediocrity and all of our good intentions and all of our, uh, all of our spiritualized procrastination. The Bible says that's a sin. God Condemn them for their sin of time. Oh, the time. It's just not the right time. Well, what was another rationale? Why did they stop so long? I think, first of all, because they, they hid behind noble intentions. We're gonna, we're gonna. We're gonna, we're gonna. They hid behind noble intentions. But I think, number two, they also hid behind the fact that they were engaged in legitimate projects. Now, what were they doing those 16 years? They're building houses. I mean, give them a break, right? I mean, they left their houses. Here they were. They had nice houses in a captivity. They, they had been there for a couple generations. When the decree came from Cyrus to go back, uh, they, they had to basically become missionaries and say, okay, we're, we're going to uh, pack up our stuff in our house and whatever we can fit on that U-Haul camel, we're going to head back to Jerusalem and that's what we're going to do. And, and now here they are and they, they've worked for years. They've done foundation work and they've done altar work and they're tired and the government has said, hey, you got to stop for a while. Okay, let's just work on our own stuff. We deserve it. We deserve a break. We deserve some time for ourselves. And nobody believes that any more than I do. I preached on it last night. But 16 years is not a break. We get ourselves into a whole different mode of ministry where we're just kind of maintaining. You know, let the younger generation have the passion, let the younger generation have the vision. You know, I've done it. I've been there. We did our part. I mean, let me enjoy a little bit. Come on, right? 
And for 16 years, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. For 16 years, I'm not doing anything wrong. We're not worshiping false gods. We're, we're worshiping the true God. We built this altar, and here's the foundation. We got all ready. Let someone else have a turn. And we're not like them. We're not like them. As if that's a justification for mediocrity. Who are they? They're good people. They're good people who quit. They're good people who quit for a really long time. There might be somebody in this room, you've checked out. No, you go to church like a robot does. And you do your duty like a robot does. But that first love, passion, it's, it's gone. That pioneering spirit, it's somewhere back in the rearview mirror. And God, by his word, comes and whooshes into a room and says, come on. And God's spirit takes his word and says, think about it. And people are dying and going to hell. Life is short. The Bible is true and Christ really did die for the sins of the world. Come on. It's a consider message. So number four, how did God get their attention? How did God get their attention? Look at verse number six. He says, consider your ways, verse five. You've sown, but you don't bring in a lot. You eat, you don't have enough. You drink, but it's, you're not filled with it. You put on clothes, but it's not enough. You're not warm, and you're trying to make money and save, but it seems like every time you try to save something, you're putting it in a bag that has holes in it. In other words, you're working as hard as you've ever worked, but you're getting less than you've ever gotten. The devourer has come. So you say, well, what does this mean? Now, you might not get it at first, and I might not get it at first, but let me just tell you this. Every single person that heard that message got it. Why? Because God had already told them in Deuteronomy, on several occasions, Deuteronomy chapter 11 most notably, God had said to them, hey, when you get to the land that I've given you, and when you settle in, if you forget about me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to touch your economy. And all the work that you do won't bring the labor, won't bring the profit you think it'll bring. Because I'm the one that controls the skies. I'm the one that controls the produce of the ground. I'm going to touch the things that distract you to remind you that you're distracted from me. So when Haggai says, hey, have you noticed in the last 16 years that you work harder and harder and harder? You're busier and busier and busier. Uh, your paycheck gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Your savings accounts are dwindling. Have you ever thought about that? In other words, what you're, what you're, what's distracting you from God is not, you're not being blessed. You know what God's doing? He's appealing to their consciousness. God's been, watch this, God's been knocking on their door for 16 years. You say, well, why didn't he just say something? Because he did say something in Deuteronomy. And they're not listening. And every year he just knocks a little bit louder. Right? Every year. But they're not listening. And every year he gets a little bit louder, but they're not listening. 
You say, well, why? Why won't God, why didn't God just send Haggai the first year? My wife came to me, this is probably 15 years ago. She said, could you have a talk with the boys? I said, about what? About what this time? She said, well, you know, they do their chores, but they don't have any initiative. And like I'll walk into the house after grocery shopping, and unless I tell them, come help me, they just sit there and do their thing. Can you just talk to the boys? I said, I'd be happy to talk to the boys. So I talked to the boys. I said, boys, let me talk to you. If your mother is carrying anything, I don't care if it's a paper clip, I want you to stop what you're doing and help her. Just go over and help her. Guys, you got it? That's your mother. She shouldn't have to carry anything. If you see her carrying something, do the right thing, stop what you're doing, and help your mother. Got it? Yes, sir. Great. Solved. (laughs) Superman has arrived. Not so much. A couple days later, my wife said, hey, it didn't work. I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, I went grocery shopping. Of course, when you go grocery shopping and you have four teenagers in the house, you take a, you take a, like a box truck, right? So she has like 20 bags of groceries from the grocery store. She, she comes back, she takes the first bag. In. I said, now listen, honey, don't tell them to help you. Don't tell them because I've talked to them and I want them to recognize it. I want them to take, take initiative. So my wife, my wife said, fine, that'd be great. So she carries the first bag of groceries in. It's like silence, you know, it could have been a Catholic church, boom. (laughs) Right? Nothing. So now she goes to get the second bag of groceries, she grabs it, this time she makes noise, you know. Boys, they're they're oblivious. Guys, we don't take hints well, do we? (laughs) Say, where were you? That is not part of the message. Third bag of groceries. Yep, went grocery shopping today. Have a lot of groceries still left in this. Just went grocery shopping, just talking to myself. <laughs> it took about four or five trips before she went into full Puerto Rican Spanish mode. <laughs> if you know my wife. When she starts speaking Spanish, you better, <laughs> you better help out, okay? The point is this. You know, God can yell at you the first time. God can call you out for your laziness. He can call you out for your apathy. But you know what God likes to do? He likes to give you an opportunity to take initiative, to come back. What kind of love is it if all you ever do for God is when God demands it? God yells louder. We condition ourselves for the yells of God and the rebukes of God. How much better to recognize how things are going. God appeals to their consciousness. But watch this. Not only does he appeal to their consciousness, he appeals to their conscience. This is how God is alarm clocking them. Look at verse number two again. He said, you're saying there's no time. 
That's your excuse. Your excuse is, it's just not the right time to build the Lord's house. When we have more time, when the right time comes, that's what we're going to do. But then watch what God says in verse number four. Is it time for you? Do you see that? But be careful what excuse you give to God because he might give it right back to you. Because it says in verse number four, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lay waste? And so you're telling me that there's not enough time to build my house, but I'm looking and saying, you, it seems like you've had plenty of time to build your house. You know how many hours you have in a day? 24. You know how many hours I have in a day? 24. Except for a week from Monday when I'll have 40 hours in my day. What's the point? The point is, every choice is a priority choice. Every choice is a priority choice. And what God is saying through Haggai is, it's not a time issue. It's a priority issue. But you show me what you do with your time. Time is the stuff of which life is made. You show me what you do with your time. Hey, you show me your credit card statement, and you show me your Google calendar, and I'll tell you everything about your life. What do you do with your time and your stuff? And what God says is, yeah, there's no time. There's no time. There's no time. That's what you say. But there's been plenty of time for you to serve you. He appeals to their conscience, to their consciousness. But then I think lastly, he appeals to their consideration. And don't miss this. Look at verse number five, where the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. Look at verse number seven. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of the army, consider your ways. You ever wonder what that meant? Way. Way. The word way means your road. The, where you're walking, where you're traveling, the direction you're headed. Consider, watch this, look it up yourself. The word consider means to lay your heart on the road. So here's what God's saying. God say, just stop. Here's what God said. Shh, stop. Pull over on the sideline of your life. We call them mile markers. Maybe you call them kilometer markers. But look, look at the marker on the road. And then look out your front windshield at the road. Is that the road you want to be traveling down? And then look in your rearview mirror. Are you sure this is the road you want to be driving down? Take your heart out and lay it on the road and say, is this really the life that I want to be living for God? You know what God says? Stop and think about your life. Stop and think about your priorities. Stop and think about where you are and what you're doing and the one life that God has given you, this, this one gift of life that God has given you, am I truly serving him with it? Or have I just kind of lost my way? Have I just kind of gotten into my autopilot zone? Hey, he appeals to your consciousness, he appeals to your conscience, and he appeals for your consideration. You say, well, Pastor Skelly, what did they do with that message? More importantly, what will you do with this message? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The next verse always kind of puzzled me. Look at it and close it. Verse number eight. The next verse always kind of puzzled me. Verse number eight. 
God says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Let me ask you a question. What does going to a mountain and getting wood have to do with building a house? Like, if I'm a builder, there's a whole lot more to building than going to the mountain and cutting down a tree. And yet that's all God said. Go to the mountain, bring some wood, build the house. There's a whole lot more to it. Those are not really specified architectural plans. Why, why would God say it that way? Because that's where you start. Because that's where you start. You start by getting some wood. Now, there's a whole lot more to it than that. But here's what God says to you today. Say, Kurt, I'm, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I once was. I don't have the same fire, the same zest. I don't have the same commitment. I've not denied God, and I'm not like them. And I've done some things for the Lord, and I'm grateful for that. But it's been far too long that I've found myself in this spiritual malaise. Just, what do I do? Identify the one thing that you can do right now to get back to building the house. You know what? For some of you, it's I'm going to start passing out gospel tracts again because that's my one thing. For somebody, it might be, you know what? It's been weeks since I've been in the Word of God on my own. I'm going to get back to the Bible. For others, it might be, you know, I, I, I've neglected that secret place of prayer that I used to frequent all the time. I'm going to get back to that place alone with God. For some, it might be, boy, I, I've just ignored my spouse. We've just coexisted in my house and I've not treated her right. I've not been kind to her. I've put on the Baptist face at church. I'm good to everybody else. I've got to start there. I, I can't tell you what your wood is, but I can tell you this, go get some wood. It might be something negative. It might be a, a pornography addiction. It might be an anger issue. It might be something that's keeping you from, but just identify what it is. Don't worry about the long list of things. Just deal with the one thing that's on your heart right now. God's saying, hey, just go get some wood and get busy again. Come on. Don't be satisfied just to stay here. For somebody in this room, it might be you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you were to die today, you don't have any real assurance you'd go to heaven. I can tell you what. Your wood is the wood of an old rugged cross. And you meet Jesus there. He's the one that can save you. He's the one that can help you. Go to the mountain and get wood. And watch this. And I will see it. And I will take pleasure in it. You take that first step. God says, I'm so pleased. You might say, my life is a mess. I don't know where to start. But I'm going to start right here. Man, hit the altar. I'm going to tell you, God said, I'm pleased with that. Don't stare up the stairs, just step up the steps one step at a time and let God do something in your life where he can get the pleasure again and get the glory again in your life. What would happen if every single one of us would leave this conference with a renewed heart for, for Jesus Christ? What would happen? Conferences don't change people, Jesus does. 
And there's no way for the conference to make a decision. Only you can make a decision. And so I'm saying to you tonight, will you get out of whatever this is and get back to whatever it should be and go get the wood that God is leading you to get for his glory. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight just to spend time in your word. Oh God, I pray that you'd just wake us, rouse us. Lord, may we be sensitive enough to your Holy Spirit not to simply hit the snooze button another year, another year. Oh God, may we get up and go up and get the wood that you've laid upon our heart. Oh God, tonight I pray that you'd work in families and marriages, in churches. God, I pray for young men that you would stir their hearts to enter ministry. I pray for each person in this room. Oh God, for a moment, would you help us to draw a circle around ourselves and just now, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, look to heaven and say, my Jesus, I love you. And oh God, may that love compel us tonight, please. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. In a moment, our musician is going to play. She'll play quietly, meditatively, as she's done every single night. This is our last chance, our last opportunity. We had a whole host of people at the beginning of the service that knelt down and said, Oh, God, speak. Oh, God, bless. It's one thing to ask him. It's another thing to respond to him. Now's a chance for those that came to say, God, speak, to say, God, you spoke. Now, what you going to do with it? What you going to do with it? Can we come to an old-fashioned altar tonight and say, Oh, God? Can we come to this place tonight and say, Oh, God? I'm coming to get some wood tonight. I'm coming to make a decision tonight. We know decisions aren't actions, but boy, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. Tonight's the night. The alarm clock is sounding. Time is short. The job needs to be done. God is speaking to you. Come on tonight. Would you come? Father, bless this invitation. Please, bless those that have already come. Bless those yet to come, I pray. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet if we can.